0: Pepperidge Farm, Milano.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, here to let you know that my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, is back for its second season. I'll be diving into some big issues, like this country's devastating maternal mortality rate, the rise of astrology, and a little thing called the presidential election. Listen to Next Question. It comes out every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.
2: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry, And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I also have a little cold, so I'm sorry if my voice sounds not quite right.
0: It's like a magical extra bonus, Tracy. We don't know you're not from another dimension. Uh, Halloween is coming, and we all know that that is my favorite time of year. And, uh, so last year we did a two-part episode on Elsa Lanchester and the Bride of Frankenstein, and it was super-duper fun, certainly for me, because I love her. And we got a raft of fabulous Halloween costume photos from fans that dressed as the bride. And so I thought it might be fun to take on another star of the Universal Horror Films this year. Uh, so get out your vampire teeth and your cape and keep them handy, because this is another two-parter, uh... I will make no secret that I love Todd Browning's 1931 Dracula. Uh, there's a newer print of it that incorporates a modern score. And there's early on when Renfield is headed up through the mountains and there's the Philip Glass string arpeggios playing. And it just sets the scene early in the film. And it just, it literally feels like magic to me. Like it's part of why I love film and cinema. It's moody and it's gorgeous. And the lighting is fantastic. And, I just, I love, I love that movie. Um And while the lead actor is mostly associated with Dracula, the star, Bella Lugosi, was so, so much more. And his name, I think when you mention it to most people, instantly conjures that image of this das- dashing, sophisticated vampire that, you know, really helped spark the entire horror film genre. But in truth, Lugosi really lost more than he gained from playing that role, even though it made him very famous in the United States. It also plagued him in many ways. Uh, but additionally, I mean, in, in as well as being part an important part of film history, his life events kind of link him to some really interesting historical moments outside of entertainment, including the fall of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy and the transition from silent film to talkies. Uh, his life was tragic in many ways, but despite all that, His image really endures as the epitome of dapper old world charm. And so I wanted to talk about his life this time around. So I hope you enjoy it in our Halloween lead up. In the usual way, we will start at the beginning.
2: Uh, Lugosi was actually a stage name. Bella Ferenik Desko Blaschko was born on October 20th, 1882 in Lugos, Hungary. Incidentally, this is only about 50 miles or 80 kilometers away from the castle that was home to Vlad the Impaler, who is, you know, the widely cited historical inspiration for Dracula. Bella's father was a baker and then a banker. And these were two professions which just broke with long-standing family tradition.
0: Yeah, his entire family had been farmers for generations. So it was kind of uh, unique of his father to strike out into Different fields. Uh, And as a child, Bella attended the local school, but once he reached 11, he was sent to what's called the state gymnasium for additional education, and that was in 1893. And so, just as a contextual note, while U.S. listeners might associate the word gymnasium with a sports facility, this was really basically the equivalent of a preparatory school.
2: The gymnasium did not agree with young Bella. After he started there, about a year later, he dropped out and ran away. He took odd jobs to try to make his way and eventually landed in a small mining town. He continued to work in whatever jobs would have him, both in the mines and assisting anyone in the town who needed it.
0: Yeah, he gets points for being uh, pretty resourceful and resilient. He was just making his way in the world as a kid, really. Uh, and one of the main forms of entertainment that was available in this mining town, which was called Rosita, was touring theatrical troops that would visit. And these performers and their shows just completely enthralled Bella. He is quoted as saying, They tried to give me little parts in their plays, but I was so uneducated, so stupid, people just laughed at me. But I got the taste of the stage. I got also the rancid taste of humiliation.
2: When he was 15, Bella decided to give education another shot. He moved to Sobotka, which is in Hungary, in 1897. And he moved in with his mother and sister and enrolled in school again.
0: But uh, it didn't go much better than it did when he was 11. He found school not to his liking, And four months into the program, he dropped out uh, and decided he would go work on the railroad. But his labor career on the railroad did not last too long either. Uh, His sister, Vilma's husband, knowing that Bella really still had this love of the stage uh, from when he had, had encountered these theater troops when he was younger, managed to get the young actor accepted into a traveling theater troupe as just a chorus player.
2: So unlike the little bit parts that he had had when he was younger... He actually did really well this time around, and soon he had moved from the chorus into bigger and bigger parts. He eventually became the lead actor for the troupe, and he did really well touring Hungary as a young actor. He was eventually accepted into the Hungarian Academy of Performing Arts in the early 1900s.
0: And it was around this same time uh, as he was focusing primarily on Shakespeare studies as his concentration and touring with a th- with theater groups, playing a lot of really major Shakespearean roles that he kind of officially dropped the last name Blaschko and started using Lugosi, which is, of course, a callback to the town where he was born.
2: He joined Budapest's National Theater in 1913, and he went on to have a lot of success as a leading man in many Shakespeare productions and other plays. Uh, Before we talk about the next big chunk of his life, which involves some military service, let's take a brief moment for a word from a sponsor.
0: Think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So, subscribe to the women on the iHeartRadio app on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Ollie, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art.
2: <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's uh, not a calm situation at all.
0: Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip.
2: You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuffy Mist Miss in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too.
0: So getting back to the life of Bella Lugosi uh, in June of 1914 So we're talking about World War I at this point. Lugosi made the decision to take a leave of absence from his acting career. Uh, He wanted to enlist and fight for Hungary in the war. And after two years of service, primarily serving on the Serbian frontier and in Russia, he was discharged for health problems. Uh, If you read some accounts, they say they were mental. Some just leave it as health problems. Uh, But in any case, after his two years of service, he went right back to work as an actor.
2: Actors with the National Theater were excused from military service, so Lugosi didn't need to enlist. Once his military career had ended in 1916, he was welcomed back to the National Theater, and he starred in The Passion as Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, that's often cited as a, uh, a really fine performance on his part, that it was one of his great roles uh, in Hungary. And the 19-teens were also seeing silent film grow as an industry in Europe. And so Lugosi kind of transitioned his acting career onto film. He was also still doing theater. But his involvement uh, was not just as an artist in either Area. He also organized a trade union for film actors in Hungary, and this was actually the first film actors union in the world. Uh, And he was also a founding member of the Free Organization of Theater Employees in 1918.
2: He really envisioned a state-run socialized theater. In his own words, quote, The definite aim of my organizing activity was the raising of the moral, economic, and cultural level of the actors' society. This is a really controversial stance, A lot of members of the Budapest theater scene demanded that he be removed from the national theater.
0: Yeah, they did not want to socialize art. Uh, You could see where that would be a huge clash of interest for a lot of people. Uh, But the Austro-Hungarian monarchy collapsed in 1918. And in the shifting political climate, many of Lugosi's colleagues, the same people who had in many cases been suggesting that he be removed from his job as an actor, started to agree that it might be a good idea for them to band together and find a way to protect themselves and their rights. And so the entire theater staff actually joined the Hungarian Civil Service Worker Society in February of 1919. Although, as the government continued to stumble in the lead up to uh, Belakon eventually seizing control and establishing the Hungarian Soviet Republic, those same artists uh, broke away from that group and they formed a new group, which was the National Trade Union of Actors.
2: When Bela Kohn's Hungarian Soviet Republic collapsed later in 1919, Lugosi, as a trade union organizer, was really on the wrong side of the government. He'd been a known supporter of revolutionary Kun, which was a big black mark once the revolution actually fell apart.
0: Yeah, he was actually barred from acting in Hungary as a consequence. Uh, and so he fled to Germany via Vienna. And there's this great sort of legendary story that, He traveled from Hungary to Vienna, hidden in a wheelbarrow underneath a pile of straw. And he acted in several German films uh, with pretty moderate success, including an adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, which did quite well.
2: Bella was married five times during his life, and the first was in 1917, to a young woman named Ilona Baby Ilona was the daughter of a bank executive, and she was just a teenager when they got married. Her family wasn't entirely on board with the relationship, both because of the age gap and because of Lugosi's political stance.
0: But nonetheless, the pair did marry in Budapest on uh, June 25th of 1917. And at this point, Alona was 16. Bella was more than twice her age. He was 34. And the pair uh, were together through all of the political turmoil that we just talked about uh, in 1918 and 1919. And Baby was actually allegedly with Bella under that hay in the wheelbarrow during his escape to Vienna.
2: But life abroad with her husband worked out to be really frightening to the young bride. Up until Lugosi's exile, his father-in-law had been providing the two of them with financial support. But once they fled, he'd refused to do it anymore. She was living as a poor actor's wife, which was just too daunting a prospect for her. And she wound up leaving her husband and going back home to her family.
0: Yeah, I, I keep in mind, she was very young. She was from a very wealthy family. She had never known anything, really, but sort of a life of luxury. So this was really a huge kind of shock for her to shift into this kind of life on the run. Uh, and Bella wrote to her. He worked. He saved money. He planned to send for her once he had amassed a decent nest egg. Like, he he wanted to make this work and make the marriage go forward. But her family really seemed to see this whole situation as an opportunity to eradicate what they felt like from the beginning had been a mistake of a marriage. Uh, They allegedly kept his letters from her. He never received answers from her, and apparently it was because she didn't know she was getting any letters from him. And they also told Baby that Bella would likely be executed if he ever attempted to return to Hungary. And she had only ever lived in Budapest her whole life and was not really eager to live elsewhere. So the family encouraged her to file for divorce, and she did so eventually. So on July 17th of 1920, uh, their brief marriage was legally ended. Bella was not there for the proceedings, which made things go super quickly. Uh, and Baby actually remarried almost immediately to a man that her family had chosen for her.
2: Decades later, when Lugosi biographer Arthur Lennig interviewed Lugosi's fourth wife, Lillian, She mentioned that Bella had been truly and deeply in love with Baby, and he'd spoken of her to his later wife and to other people as his one true mate. He tried to keep in touch with Baby through the years, and claimed that they even discussed remarrying later on. But because at that point she had a family and children, the whole prospect was way too complicated and emotionally difficult to really seriously consider.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, because he had a reputation as a womanizer, but he really did seem in his heart to have stayed sort of devoted to his first wife, which is kind of an, an interesting thing that people don't often talk about. Um, and so while his film career in Germany was going quite well at this point, uh, once it was apparent that the marriage was over, Lugosi headed to the U.S. in October of 1920. And so on December of that same year, he arrived in New Orleans. He actually entered the U.S. illegally, but he made his way to New York. uh, And four months after his arrival in America, he was then processed officially and legally at Ellis Island in March of 1921.
2: Despite the fact that he spoke little to no English, although he did speak several other languages, he got fairly consistent work on the New York stage because of his stage presence and his acting ability and his skill for learning all of his lines phonetically.
0: I sort of love this. And it's one of the things that people have uh, debated and discussed uh, throughout the years. How much of this stayed the case? Because he, he kind of retained that image and that story of not speaking uh, terribly good English for a while. Um And how much of that was really like, no, it it adds to the drama and the glamour of this sort of mysterious man who, you know, is just learning everything phonetically. Whereas other people have said, no, I spoke with him. He could speak English. Not great, but he could carry on a conversation. So we don't know to what degree that ended up being true. But at this stage, it really was the case. He really did not speak much English. Uh, His first English-language play was called The Red Poppy, and it debuted in 1922, and that was staged at the Greenwich Village Theater. And not long after that, just the following year in 1923, he made his U.S. film debut in the silent film The Silent Command. And because most films were silent at this point, uh, the language barrier was not such a barrier to a film career. And he went on to appear in nearly a dozen films in the U.S. in the 1920s, including The Midnight Girl, Prisoners, and The Veiled Woman. So before we hop on to talk about his next marriage and also sort of we're, we're edging up to Dracula time. Do you want to take a word from our sponsor? Sure.
1: How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? All four of my kids are grown and out of the house. And I was chucked out of a 25 year career. Super fun. Our lives have changed direction. So now what do we do? what's the first move when you have no idea where you're headed for us it was starting the road to somewhere podcast and we still don't really know where we're going but every one of our episodes takes us someplace a little different it's super exciting but if we're being honest it can also get a little scary because maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship just starting or just starting over No matter what the change you're going through, the question is really the same. How do we get fearless when we feel uncertain? I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you
2: get your podcasts. To return to the story of Bela Lugosi, not long after he arrived in New York, he got married again this time to Ilona von Motok. The second Ilona was a Viennese actress who worked with the Hungarian theater community that Bella had joined up with once he made it to New York. Uh,
0: unfortunately, uh, as with his first marriage, this marriage did not last very long. His actress wife divorced him on November 11th of 1924, claiming adultery is the reason for separation. Uh, as I said, he had a reputation as a womanizer. Adultery comes up again uh, later on as well. And now we're getting to the meaty Dracula part. Yeah, Bram
2: Stoker had always wanted his novel to be adapted for the stage, but it was such a sweeping story with so many locations and such a huge cast of characters that most producers did not want to touch it. Twelve years after the author's death, the story of Count Dracula finally made its theatrical debut in Derby, England in August of 1924.
0: Uh, the critics, not so much with that. The, uh, it was completely panned by the critics. However, audiences could not get enough of it. Uh, it also, uh, we should point out, was not all that similar to the novel that it was based on. Uh, it had to be pared down significantly and edited quite a bit for logistical reasons and practicality in terms of staging. But additionally, uh, Bram Stoker's widow, Florence Stoker, had issued the rights to the play with no stipulations as to how the work was handled. Uh, she really kind of liquidated a lot of her husband's assets after he died to kind of, you know, keep money coming in. And she made a tidy cut from the show, but it didn't seem like she was particularly attached to retaining the material in any sort of uh, pristine way.
2: The play started a second run in London in 1927, with actor Raymond Huntley starring as the Count. It got a similar reception to the 1924 staging. Critics still hated it, but the ticket sold out for five full months. An American producer named Horace Liveright was really eager to reproduce this financial success of Dracula in the United States. So he got the rights from Mrs. Stoker to stage it on Broadway.
0: And the initial plan was that they were going to have Raymond Huntley continue to star in the role as the Count and travel to the U.S. and reprise that role. But that ran into a little bit of a problem. Uh, Huntley, perhaps spurred on by the success of Dracula on the London stage, would only star in the American adaptation in exchange for a much larger sum of money than the U.S. producers could afford.
2: So instead, the producer hired an actor who had European charm, acting experience, and most importantly, the willingness to work for less money. That was Bella Lugosi.
0: And at this point, Bella had been working in the States for several years, but he still could not speak English terribly well. Uh, So once again, he learned all of his lines phonetically. Uh, The director had to give him all of his notes and instructions in French because that was a language they could both speak.
2: So despite the fact that the lead actor was relaying his lines in a language he didn't really know, when the Broadway version of Dracula opened on October 5th, 1927, it was a huge success. And its success quickly grew, so much so that Universal Pictures took notice.
0: Uh, And now we have another marriage, and this one is a fabulous sort of tabloid-grade crazy story. So (laughs) As Lugosi's star was on the rise, he had his own little personal Hollywood scandal. Uh, in 1929, he wel- married wealthy heiress and widow Beatrice Woodruff Weeks while he was in San Francisco with a touring production of Dracula. So the pair had known each other for some time, but the marriage is always described as whirlwind. Like They seem to have known each other kind of casually for about a, a year, uh, although this all happened very quickly.
2: The two of them were married on July 28, 1929, and they separated just three days later. In divorce testimony, Weeks said that Lugosi had started out delightful, but quickly revealed an angry, temperamental nature. Lugosi made no claim to Weeks's fortune in the settlement, although it would have made him a rich man if he had.
0: Yeah, she had a load of money of her own. She, like we said, she was an heiress. Uh, she had family money. She had also inherited a great deal of money uh, as a widow. And he had legally he had rights to claim part of it, even though their marriage had been extremely brief. But he just didn't pursue it. So, in an interview with the New York Daily Mirror, Weeks uh, made some allegations that really damaged Lugosi's reputation quite a while. Uh, she claimed that Bella had slapped her for eating his food. Like he had apparently squirreled away a lamb chop or something f- to eat after his late performance. Like he liked to have a midnight lunch and she had eaten it and he got very angry about it. Uh, she also said he was abusive to the servants as well as to her. Uh, sh- there were also some, uh, suggestions that he had had a dalliance with Clara Bow. That's mixed into the scandal. And Lugosi and Beau were friends. They spent a great deal of time together in 1928, and they have been romantically linked, but the nature of their relationship has never been, like, super conclusively determined. Uh, we do know that Lugosi kept a nude painting that he claimed was of Beau in his home for the rest of his life. And we know that Clara Beau definitely, uh, was a woman who took a lot of lovers. She was very into living sort of a, a fast and dramatic life. So, That was sort of his little hiccup in terms of uh, Hollywood scandal time. And now, so he's been playing Dracula on the stage. Universal is interested. And that's where we are going to cliffhang this one. Uh, And you'll have to wait for part two to find out how the rest of it plays out in his later career.
2: But you don't have to wait for listener mail, right? No, I have that. I
0: totally have that. Uh, This listener mail is from our listener, Sarah, and she says, Dear Holly and Tracy, I started listening to your podcast a little over a year ago after hearing the guys on Stuff You Should Know plug it numerous times, and now I enjoy listening to you every Monday and Wednesday while I'm working out. I especially appreciate your efforts to discuss groups often overlooked in traditional history courses, namely women and minorities. I was especially interested in your recent episode on the heathen school. As part of obtaining my master's degree in English, I wrote a thesis on interracial romance in the works of Native American author Sherman Alexie. In order to do this, I had to do a considerable amount of research on historical cultural attitudes and incidents surrounding the marriage of Elias Boudinot and Harriet Gold. in my thesis. Uh, to catch anyone up that maybe didn't listen to that one or doesn't remember, they that was one of the couples that we mentioned in the Heathen School episode. Uh, Over the course of conducting this research, I discovered that white Americans have historically been much more accepting of interracial relationships that involved white men and Native American women than of relationships that involved Native American men and white women. The reasons for this are manifold and bound by both racism and imperialism. From the time of Pocahontas to the presidency of Thomas Jefferson, intermarriage between whites and Native Americans was seen as a means of assimilating and civilizing the Native population, In the 18th and early 19th centuries, it was typical for white fur traders, always men and usually among the first whites to venture into what is now the western U.S. and Canada, to take Native American wives to handle cooking, mending, and general homemaking tasks that the men at the time typically would not perform. It was also sadly not uncommon for these white fur traders to abandon their native wives when they retired from fur trading and headed back east. These marriages were viewed favorably by both the fur trading companies and the young U.S. government as they represented a civilizing movement of whites into native populations and the white acquisition of native lands. They also occurred conveniently out of sight of the general white population. White women didn't become a factor until later in the 19th century when pioneer women began moving west after the Indian Removal Act under President Andrew Jackson and after the pseudoscience of the time began classifying people of different races as different species. Uh, before, Native Americans had just been unlearned white people with really good tans. But they did, I'm uh, paraphrasing a little bit, they did get classified later as a different species, which is a whole other creepy thing to talk about. Uh, but the westward movement of white women meant that they now had increased opportunities to come into contact with Native American men. And when such relationships and marriages, though few in number, began to take place, they were met with the kind of public reaction Boudinot and Gold experienced. A white man taking position of a Native woman was an acceptable part of the North American conquest, but for a Native American man to take a white wife was to reverse this conquest, and that was unallowable. It is at this point in American history that we see numerous states passing laws that specifically ban marriages between Native Americans and whites. As you can probably imagine, this topic fascinated me so much that my thesis ended up being three times as long as it was supposed to be, much to the chagrin of my committee. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed this tangent on the Heathen School episode. We absolutely did. Thank you so much, Sarah. That's one of those things um, uh, I think, like, I was aware of, but my brain didn't think, oh, I should flesh this out for people. So I'm glad you did, because it does clarify kind of why that was such a problem when we have talked about some of those other uh, marriages with a white man and a Native American woman on previous episodes, and those haven't been quite so much a problem. So we always love to hear uh, additional research expertise from our listeners so if you would like to share any additional info with us or just suggest an episode or talk to us about anything that delights you you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also connect with us at Facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at MissedInHistory and com, and on Pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to visit our Spreadshirt store. You can get Mist in History shirts and other merchandise, and that's missedinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to learn a little bit more about a topic related to what we discussed today, you can go to our parent site, House of Works, type in the word Dracula in the search bar, and one of the great articles you will get was, Who was the real Count Dracula? And it will talk a bit about Vlad Tepeth. Uh, if you would like to visit us at our home on the web, it's MissedInHistory.com. And if you would like to research almost anything your mind can conjure, you can do that at our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com.
2: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class.
0: The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season 1 features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple
1: Podcasts, or wherever
0: you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.